couple of things I forgot to mention in announcements. Uh, there is combined prayer in the Dalles tonight, I believe, at the Pikert's home. Um, yes, I'm getting a nod from Stan, so that's, that's true. And then also, um, it was great to celebrate uh, new memberships this morning, welcoming Mike and Lori into the family. If you're not a member and you'd like to become one, please talk to me or Steve or Jim after the service, and we'd love to get that started for you. But now we turn our attention to the preaching of God's Word. And this section this morning is actually a, a, an important section. It really, what it's going to do in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount for some time, uh, what it's doing is it's really forming a bookend for the main part of uh, Jesus' sermon. Uh, now, you remember, just to walk you through in, the, in broad terms, what Jesus has done in this sermon. In chapter 5, he started out with Beatitudes, uh, these, these, these statements of what does it look like uh, for his disciples to live a blessed life, a happy life, a flourishing life, especially when, like Jesus, the disciples are going to be persecuted, they're going to be poor, they're going to be uh, 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 wanting kingdom righteousness to come. And really, that is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount, kingdom righteousness, and after the Beatitudes, Jesus, as also as part of his introduction, gave them this mission of being salt and light. Remember, Jesus called the disciples, and he called them uh, to be fishers of men. And as part of that, they're to look different with their kingdom righteousness in the world so that uh, those outside might ask questions. How, how, how is it that you live this way? And they can point to their Father in heaven. And so that those people, in turn, might change, might repent, might turn allegiance from sin and self to Christ as king, and to, they might too honor the Father who is in heaven. But then Jesus, if you remember, got into the main body of his sermon. He got through that introduction, and the main body of his sermon, he really started in 517 through 20. This is a significant section. I want to read it because it really does set the stage for the other uh, bookend. It, really, we have two bookends here. Here's the first one. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And with that, Jesus sets the stage of uh, really this kingdom righteousness. And he starts first by talking about the law and the commandments. Uh, it's not just that you obey the external form of the commandments. You pursue God's heart in the commandments. That's how you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So he lays that out for us in the rest of chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, 1 through 18, Jesus talked to us about righteous habits. What does it mean and look like to have righteous habits such that you're not seeking the reward from people, but you're seeking reward from your Father in heaven? And then in the last couple weeks in uh, Matthew 6, 19 through 34, we've talked about uh, possessions. Jesus, as the master, as uh, the one who's calling the disciples, as the king, has complete control over his disciples' lives, including the most personal aspect of our life, what we often consider to be the most personal aspect of our lives, our possessions. What we do with our possessions, what our priorities are. And you remember that last week he ended that section with this startling statement, but seek first, even above your needs, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And with that, really, Jesus has, by and large, finished the main statement, the main content of his sermon, right? He has an introduction, he has a body, and he has a conclusion. He's finishing up his body of his sermon. How do we know that? Well, in 7.12, which is what we, uh, is part of our section that we're considering, notice this, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, which is where Jesus started in 5.17 through 20. So we got two bookends. What does it look like? Remember the law and the prophets, they're talking about righteousness. They're, they're an expression of God's standard of righteousness from the heart. How do you then obey God's law from the heart? What does it look like? And Jesus has been painting that picture for his disciples 
for this kingdom righteousness. But what Jesus does here as he ends, he, 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 uh, in this section, I don't know if you've read through this section before, it kind of feels a little disjointed sometimes. You read through it, it's like, well, he's got this, that's a good thing to say, and that's a good thing to say, but how do they all fit together? And I believe they do fit together, and I, and I think the issue is this. See, the disciples, remember, he's training the disciples, first and foremost, you've got the disciples right there in front of him on the Sermon on the, uh, on the Mountaintop, and then uh, scattered around, around that is this crowd who's come because of the healings, they're interested in Jesus, we don't necessarily know where their loyalties lie, but given the content of what it looks like to, as a disciple, live kingdom righteousness, the question kind of ends and I think that sets up this section is this, what do you do with that standard of righteousness, that standard of kingdom righteousness in relation to others and to God? What do you do with that standard of righteousness in relation to others and to God? And what Jesus is going to expose here is what all human beings do. Every manifestation of God's law, whether it's the law written on the conscience, whether it's the Mosaic law, whether it's Christ's law, it's a standard, but what human beings tend to do with that standard, or at least often, and what the scribes and Pharisees did, was, I meet that standard. I meet that standard, uh, and how then, if you believe that you meet that standard, that changes how you relate to God and to others. And Jesus is going to essentially give a warning for how not, to, how not to relate to God and others and also how to relate to God and others as he ends that sermon. Here's the standard, but before we leave, how do you relate to God and to others in view of this standard? So that's the big idea of this section, 7, 1 through 12. Relate to the Father disciples, and outsiders with right judgment. Relate to the Father, disciples, and outsiders with right judgment. And we start in verses 1 through 5 with this idea. Do not judge as though you're sinless. Do not judge as though you're sinless. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. Favorite Bible verse of uh, Americans these days, probably even more so than John 3.16, right? Because as soon as you start talking to someone, say, you're doing wrong, they say, don't judge, don't judge, right? We hear that actually quite a bit. But let's understand in context what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, let's dive in, even to just to verse one, and try to understand what is Jesus speaking about. You see, the word judgment, like in English, it's also true in Greek, it actually has a broad range. It can just talk about making decisions. It can talk about a formal legal proceeding. Uh, it can talk about condemnation. Well, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, we make an observation, judge not for what motive? In order that you not be judged. By who? It's by God. The, the passive forms, you see them in 7.1, you also see them in 7.2, and you see them in the broader context of Matthew and even the whole Bible. Often a passive voice will be used, and by passive I just mean you will be judged, but the, uh, who is that? And usually that's an indirect way of referring to God, and I believe it's true in this case. Don't judge in order that you not be judged by God. Now, let's think about that for a minute. If we think about Matthew and the scriptures of the whole, we know, uh, we can see this even in Matthew, if we to return to Matthew 25, the, the judgment of the sheep and the goats, that every single person, believer or unbeliever, disciple or no, will undergo God's judgment in terms of the act of God's judgment, a legal proceeding, the, the, the day of judgment at the end of time. That's what John the Baptist has been talking about. That's what Jesus is going to be talking about. He'll talk about it more in the, the last bit of the Sermon on the Mount, but he'll talk about it more later. That is the fundamental reality of God's judgment. Every single person, every single individual that has ever lived is held accountable 
to God and to his judgment. So everyone is going to go through God's act of judgment. Every person is going to go through that process. So if we look back at 7.1, judge not that you be not judged, the implication is, is that Jesus can't be talking about people or the disciples not going through the process of God's judgment. You see that? If everyone's going to go through uh, the process of God's judgment, then it can't be true that he's telling them to avoid the process of God's judgment. That can't happen. But in what sense can disciples and do disciples avoid God's judgment in terms of condemnation, in terms of condemnation? So we understand here that the kind of judgment that is being talked about is a negative verdict. It's not the process of judgment. It's a negative verdict of that process of judgment. And then you understand this, we're just building a case here, the exact same, so we understand God's judgment there. Let's think even a little bit more about that. How does God or will God judge people at the end of time? He will judge people by his law. He will judge people, and what what do we talk about about the law in terms of uh, Matthew? What is Jesus pointing to? The law and every manifestation of the law is ultimately rooted in God's eternal moral character. Remember Matthew 5.48, you therefore must be perfect or blameless, I think is a better translation, you therefore must be blameless as your heavenly father is blameless. So ultimately the standard of God's judgment at the end of time is his own eternal righteous character. It's not just that God is righteous, He is the standard in himself with his character of righteousness. And he will measure every single individual by that standard of righteousness. But notice here, that's God's judgment. The same word for the disciple judging is the exact same word as God's judging. In other words, the implication we can draw is the judgment that uh, that uh, Jesus is speaking about here is the, o- the judgment that only God himself has the prerogative to execute. That's the kind of judging we're talking about. We're not talking about making decisions. We'll see clearly in this passage and even the whole of Matthew, we can clearly see that Jesus gives his disciples the right to make delineations between uh, right and wrong and say that's sin and that's not sin. So he's not talking about that. He's talking about the type of judgment that is only God's prerogative. Here's how we could describe this judging. This judging is a negative verdict, we said that before, of a person's sin in light of the disciple's righteousness. So think about God's judgment. God's judgment that he's talking about here is a negative verdict of a person's sin in light of God's righteousness, because he's the standard. But the same word for the disciples judging is the same word that he's using for God's judging. So what is the disciple doing? The disciple wrongly is issuing a negative verdict of a person's sin. That's not wrong, but this is the wrong part. In light of the disciples perceived righteousness. That's what Jesus is addressing. He's not addressing uh, the act of judgment per se or of making decisions or distinguishing your, uh, this person is wicked versus this person is righteous. He's talk about, talking about by what standard do you measure it? Do you measure it by yourself? Oh, Jesus laid out the standard of righteousness, kingdom of righteousness. I met it. Uh, let me go ahead and evaluate other people by me meeting that standard. That's what Jesus is addressing. Or another way we could say this, this is self-righteous judgment. This is uh, the judgment that sees oneself as having met the standard. And because I've met the standard, uh, oh, I see that you haven't met the standard because you didn't live up to me and therefore you're wrong. And I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm issuing a negative verdict on your life or I'm punishing you in some way. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about self-righteous judgment. And Jesus is issuing a real command and a real warning to his disciples. Don't judge. Just like he did, he said, don't be anxious and don't heap up for yourself treasures on earth. He issues this real warning. Judge not in order that you be not judged. And he 
supports it, verse 2. He supports what he just said in verse 2. For with, what, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. This is the idea of reciprocity, right? That here's the disciple. They think they've met the standard of righteousness that God has laid out in, uh, that, that Christ has laid out in the Sermon on the Mount. And this disciple is ba- uh, b- based on comparing others with themselves. They're issuing a negative judgment. And God is saying, all right, if that's what you do, then that same measure, uh, you condemned this sin in another person's because they didn't, uh, they didn't meet up the standard. You compared them with yourself. You, you expose that in their lives. Well, at the end of time, when God reviews your life, he's going to use the exact same standard. The very littlest or the very largest sin that you pointed out in another's and you measure them by yourself, God's going to point that out to you. And the implication is, Jesus is saying, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. Uh, if God uses that same measure, the same measure and standard of judgment that you're using, you're going to fail. You're going to fall short. You're going to fall short. You see, a disciple can turn the standard of kingdom righteousness into a means of self-justification, just like the scribes and the Pharisees did with the law. Whether it's the Mosaic law or whether it's kingdom righteousness, it can happen the same way. And Jesus says, you are absolutely forbidden to do that. You are absolutely without qualification as a disciple of Christ, forbidden to measure others to yourself as the standard of righteousness. Now, don't miss what wasn't said. You're not forbidden to measure others by God's standard of righteousness. The disciples have already been given that standard, 548, right? You therefore must be blameless as your father in heaven is blameless. The issue is the self-righteousness here. And that is all too easy to do. And he goes on with his argument. He, he advances it in verse three. Why do you see the speck? It's like the splinter. So he's talking about wood, uh, the splinter that is in your brother's eye. So now we're talking about uh, disciples. Now, back up just a second. The principle that Jesus just stated in 7, 1, and 2, he didn't limit it. He didn't limit it, did he? He limits it in verse 3 in talking about judging a fellow disciple, but in verses 1 and 2, he's talking about in an absolute way, whether you're talking a believer or an unbeliever, you are absolutely forbidden from judging that person according to you, personally meeting a standard of righteousness. I met the standard. That person hasn't met the standard. Whether it's a believer or unbeliever, you are forbidden from doing that. Okay? But in verse 3, we turn a corner, and he applies that general principle and says, why do you see the splinter that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log or the beam that is in your own eye? Now, this is maybe this comes from Jesus being a carpenter. We don't know. But you've got a splinter in one person's eye. It's really small, right? The beam he's talking about would be like one of these beams. That's what we're talking about here, like a support beam for a building. So it's, a, it's an absurd picture that Jesus is painting, right? You've got this, this guy, he's got a beam uh, sticking out of his eye, right? He's whacking people all over the place with it as he moves his eye around, right? But somehow he's still able to look at the other person and see the tiny speck in that other person's eye. And he's like, why in the world are you doing that? That's ridiculous, but that's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness, a self-righteous judgment, ignores our own faults, but can see others very, very, very clearly, right? Because, here's why, right? In a self-righteous judgment, putting down others uh, is important. So the very tiniest thing that I can see in others, if I'm measuring them by myself, I've got to put that down and I've got to exalt myself and to lift it up. I think the log here, the beam that Jesus is talking about, is the specific sin of self-righteousness. The perspective here is God's perspective. He doesn't deny, and Jesus won't deny, that the other fellow disciple, the brother, has a splinter in their eye. There's a problem. That's a moral issue. There's a moral issue in in this uh, other brother's life. But in comparison, whatever that issue is, in comparison to the self-righteous judgment of this disciple, Self-righteous judgment is a way bigger issue in God's eyes. God hates 
self-righteous judgment. He hates it. It's a bigger sin issue than that other issue that you might see in a fellow disciple's eye. Why? Because God hates it when people try to justify themselves rather than, well, really acknowledging that I also have fallen short of God's standard and deserve his wrath. That's really what's going on here. It's judging according to an individual's perceived righteousness rather than God's absolute perfect righteousness. Or how can you say to your brother, verse 4, let me take the speck out of your eye, the splinter, when there is a beam in your own eye. You can't do it, right? And that, this, is how, uh, this is how self-righteous judgment works. I see a sin issue in your life. Uh, you're in the wrong. Um, let me help you. Let me help you. But the problem is you can't do it. You're going to cause more harm than good if you yourself have self-righteous judgment in your life. And so what does he say in verse 5? You hypocrite. We're familiar with this term. We saw it in chapter 6. It's the word for play actor. If you do this, if you have this self-righteous condemning judgment, you're a hypocrite. You're a play actor. In what sense are you play acting? You're presenting yourself as having met the standard of God's righteousness, and then you're measuring others by that standard when, in fact, the very fact that you're trying to justify yourself through uh, supposedly meeting God's standard is heinous in God's eyes. You're a hypocrite. You're a play actor. But notice what Jesus, uh, what Jesus says here. You hypocrite. This, is, this term for hypocrite, it's only other, otherwise used of scribes and Pharisees or those outside of the Messianic community. Jesus is warning his disciples, saying, disciples, you can slip into the same mindset of the scribes and Pharisees. Don't do it. But what should you do? First, take the beam out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. So you see what happens here. The issue is not that there's not a splinter in that other person's eye. There is. And Jesus even affirms that, yeah, uh, as a fellow disciple, you can see an issue in someone else's life, big or small, whatever it is. You can see that and you can, it's still sin. It's still a sin issue. But the thing is, if you've got a self-righteous judgment, that is way more heinous in God's eyes, and you need to deal with that first. And how do you deal with it? You need to acknowledge before God, I have fallen short of God's standard. Uh, I have no, I, I, I am not the standard. I haven't met the standard. I have fallen short. Jesus has acknowledged that. Even though he set the standard in 548, you therefore must be blameless as your heavenly father is blameless. He also said in the Lord's prayer that the disciples should be asking on a daily basis Forgive me my trespasses. So there's an acknowledgement that disciples, even though they're striving towards the standard of God's righteousness, they're falling short, which means that there is never a case where a disciple can be the standard of, of, of righteousness in comparison with someone else. Rather, there needs to be the acknowledgement, I have fallen short of God's standard. I deserve God's wrath. And the only way I'm going to escape God's wrath is by repenting, turning my allegiance from sin and self, and looking to God who has grace through Christ, through following Christ, who, who alone dealt with that sin issue. And that's the only way I can stand and call God my Father. That's what it means to take the log out of your own eye, to acknowledge I have fallen short, I would be condemned by God's standard. God is the ultimate standard. And yet I know there is grace from my generous heavenly father through Christ that he has dealt with the sin, that my sins are forgiven. And then you see clearly to, to go to a fellow brother who does have a sin issue in their life. He doesn't say don't deal with the sin issue. He says to deal with it, right? The, the guy who had the beam in his eye is still supposed to help a fellow disciple to correct them. But now the disciple who is going to judge the other has something to give. It's God's grace. You see, they stand equal, no matter what the sin issue is, they stand equal, equally fallen from God's standard and equally needy of God's grace and equally given the grace that they need to deal with the sin issues in their life. And once you've done that as a disciple, you can see clearly to walk up to a brother and say, brother or sister, I see this issue in your life. 
And you know what? I fall short too. Um, so, but here's the thing. I know God has given me grace. He's, he has shown me mercy. But here's this issue in your life. Won't you, won't you acknowledge that you have fallen short of God's standard, even as I have? And won't you, won't you partake in the same grace that our good Heavenly Father has given us through Christ? That's the sort of attitude that Jesus is talking about here. Do you set yourself up as the standard of righteousness by which you judge others, believer or unbeliever? That's heinous in God's eyes. It is a heinous evil. Only God has the prerogative to judge in that way. You fall short of his righteousness. We all do. And it's only by the grace that is in Christ that makes you stand. So you cannot judge others in that sort of way. Doesn't mean you're discerning, because obviously the person is still able to discern the, the, the evil in that fellow disciple's life. And speaking of which, you ought to be correcting your fellow disciples. As members of this local church, we ought to be correcting one another, but not in a self-righteous judgment sort of way, but in those who have received grace and want to help others receive that same grace from the Heavenly Father. You ought to be correcting your fellow disciples, holding them not to the standard of yourself, but to God's standard, understanding that you are both equally in desperate need of God's grace. And practically speaking, when you see some issue in someone's life, you take the step of examine your own life. Maybe there's a way in which you're falling short in that same area. But even if you're not, acknowledge that you fall short, humble yourselves before God first, and repent before correcting another. But do correct. That's what Jesus is saying. So first, what we see here is you're not to judge as though you're sinless. You're not to judge as though you're sinless. Doesn't mean don't discern between good and evil. Doesn't mean don't call other people out on their evil. It just means don't hold yourself up as the standard. God alone is the standard of righteousness. But second, what we see in relation to this is do not give the holy to indifferent outsiders. Do not give the holy to indifferent outsiders. Look at verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Maybe this is one of those phrases you've read before, and like, what? what's he talking about, right? Like, I kind of get it, but I kind of don't. Well, again, we have a metaphor from Jesus here, and we need to, remember the evil eye thing we did a couple weeks ago and trying to work through and understand that? We had a physical level of the metaphor that we needed to understand first, and then we could bridge to what it was pointing to, what Jesus is teaching. Well, we need to do the same thing here. So first, what we need to understand is that dogs, dogs in Jesus' time, they're, they're scavengers. These are not pets. These are, these are uh, half-starved scavengers roaming the streets of Jerusalem, and they'd eat trash and garbage, and they're kind of vicious because, you know, if you have a hungry dog, they're kind of vicious. Uh, they could turn and attack you very, very easily. So that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the kind of dogs that we're dealing with here. Now, what's interesting is, in what context would you show, throw dogs something holy? Usually holy, in Matthew at least, it's used with regard to the Holy Spirit, or the Holy City, a.k.a. Jerusalem, or the Holy Place, a.k.a. the Temple. But here it's just the holy, the, the, something in the category of holy. Well, at the physical level of the metaphor, you, might, you, you need to remember that in Jerusalem is the temple, and in the temple are priests. And in the, uh, what are the priests doing? They're taking these offerings of meat uh, that then become consecrated. They become holy to God. And what would happen is the priests were supposed to take that sacrificial meat, or at least in some cases, and they would get to eat it. The priests would. Uh, and so the, vision, the imagery here is uh, of a disciple put in the role of a priest uh, giving holy meat to dogs. That's the only thing that dogs would be interested in from the temple. That would be holy, right? But it's this imagery of, here's this scavenging, nasty, unclean, vicious dog. And here you are as a priest that you've given, you have this holy meat, something that has been consecrated to God, and then tossing it to such an animal. It is, it is heinous, right? It is, 
it is wicked. It is wrong. Something so valuable, so precious to throw to such an unclean animal. So that's kind of the dog imagery. What about the, uh, the, the, the pigs here? Do not throw your pearls before pigs. Well, pigs are only raised by Gentiles, right? Um, they, they, uh, and we're probably talking about domesticated pigs here, right? Uh, so you remember the story, and I think it comes up later in Matthew. The demons go out into the pigs, but Jesus is in a Gentile area when that happens. So pigs are uh, the quintessential unclean animal for Jews. Uh, pearls, pearls, uh, you know, it's not that hard to get pearls today, right? Because they have, uh, you can make synthetic pearls, right? And you can go into Macy's and buy them or whatever, and you can buy your synthetic pearls. Well, they didn't have synthetic pearls in Jesus' day. All they had were natural pearls. And natural pearls are quite rare. In fact, in this day, they could, they could be easily more valuable than than diamonds. They're quite rare and precious. So here we have, uh, again, the imagery of something very, very precious and valuable uh, thrown to kind of into the pig pen, like into the feeding trough of the pigs, right? And in both cases, with the dogs and with the pigs, you're giving something that's of such value to an animal that can't discern how valuable it is, right? In the case of the, the sacrificial meat that's holy, uh, the dogs can't discern that it's holy. They have no interest in that. They're totally insensitive. And with the pigs, you give them these pearls. They're very valuable. They're just going to trample them underfoot. And in fact, it's not just that the pigs are going to trample them underfoot. Uh, the, it's either the dogs or the pigs that are going to turn to attack you. I think it's the dogs. Personally, he talks about dogs, pigs, pigs, and then dogs again. I think that's what he's doing. But the idea is... You give something like, say, meat to dogs, and they have no sensitivity to it, and you throw it to them, it's almost like a feeding frenzy, right? They're going to eat the meat, but they're going to come after you. They're going to tear the, the more meat that's right in front of them, throwing this extra meat, right? They're going to, these, the, the, it's, someone, it's something who, which is insensitive, an insensitive animal, but which also is potentially harmful and vicious. So that's the physical level of the metaphor. That's the imagery that Jesus has here. But what is it picturing, right? So we've got the imagery, but what, what's he teaching about? Well, we get some clues. First, dogs and pigs were often uh, ways that the Jewish people would refer to Gentiles. Now, Jesus is not anti-Gentile because we see that very clearly in the Gospel of Matthew where he, he, um, he is extending the kingdom to, uh, the, he's roping in kingdom citizens even from the Gentiles. So he's not talking about Gentiles per se, but what he's talking about is people who are outsiders, who are outside the community of the disciples, really. And not just any old outsider, but what might be termed uh, dogs and pigs. Those who are insensitive to something, uh, to this, whatever the pearls and the holy represent, Something, uh, something uh, that uh, people that are insensitive and also potentially vicious. Okay, so what is this holy thing? What are the pearls represent? Well, I think, remember, what did Jesus just cast his disciples as? He cast them in the, um, in the picture of priests. As a priest, don't give your holy food to dogs. Well, think back to John's baptism. Do you remember John's baptism? What did John's baptism symbolize? It symbolized the need for Israel, for people to repent, to be cleansed and washed so they could be a priestly people. And so this idea of how do disciples become priests, well, they become priests through repentance. Uh, the repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's the, the message they've responded to. And then they're to be fishers of men. They're to uh, bring that same message to others. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the gospel of the kingdom. That's what's precious to a disciple. That's what's holy. That's what's valuable. What Jesus is talking about here and is, I think, he's talking about don't give the message of the kingdom to those who are insensitive to it and have no desire for it and may even be um, against it. There's a time and a place, this is what Jesus is talking about, 
where you're proclaiming the message of the kingdom, you're proclaiming the gospel, and you can't discern this initially, not usually, right? But there comes a time and place you're talking to someone, you're presenting the gospel to them, you're talking to them about the kingdom, you're talking to them about the king and who he is, all the things that are most precious to a disciple, and it means zero to the person you're talking to, absolutely nothing. They're insensitive, or even in sometimes you're trying to, you keep bringing it to them, you keep pushing it, and they're, they're, they start to get angry, right? Like, quit talking to me about it. And there's a time and a place, and this is what Jesus is saying, there's a time and a place to withhold the message of the kingdom. You ever thought about that? There is a time and a place to not preach the gospel. In fact, you see that uh, with the disciples going out in chapter 10. Jesus says, uh, there's a time where you're going to have to shake the dust off your feet from a town or a people. Now, this is a discernment issue, right? Uh, initially, when you're talking to someone, you probably can't discern, is this person just totally insensitive and just there's nothing, uh, there's nothing getting through? But as you talk with them and they are hardened, they're insensitive, they don't want to hear it. They might even turn and, pers- uh, and tear you to pieces, right? Attack you. Then Jesus is saying, okay, when that happens, withdraw the message. Don't, don't give your pearls. Don't give what's holy to those kinds of people. And that is a form of God's judgment. Whenever God withdraws his word, that is a form of God's judgment. And here it's the most precious, most valuable thing and message in existence and when it's, with, when it's withdrawn, that's a sign of God's judgment. Now think about how this connects with what we just saw in 7, 1 through 5. While the disciples are not to have a self-righteous judgment towards outsiders, 7, 1 through 5, they are to have discernment towards outsiders and deliver God's judgment of withholding the gospel of the kingdom from indifferent outsiders. So here's a case where we see the disciples have to have discernment. They have to make a judgment, so to speak, but not by their standard, not by themselves, but based on who God is. In other words, Jesus is speaking, give the gospel to those who will listen in the long run. Again, you can't discern that on an initial encounter, but you can as you interact with that person. The gospel of the kingdom is precious and holy. There are times where it is not right to proclaim it to those who are confirmed in insensitivity and hostility. And really the idea is spend effort on people who will listen. Spend effort on people who will listen. And you got to think about this, right? Like, So the disciples were just told, you're not the standard of righteousness. You fall short. You can't judge others. And then he says, you see an aspect of God's judgment where he's withdrawing the word from those who are insensitive to it. And that should raise a question in the disciples' mind. It's like, how do I know I'm not going to become insensitive? How, am I, how, how, is it po- how is it possible for those who are in an insensitive state, or how is it possible to avoid such an insensitive state, right? This is, I know I'm a sinner. I know I fall short. How do I know that I'm not going to end up like a pig or a dog, right? Totally insensitive to God's gospel message. It's an in- insensitivity into the things of God is a frightful state to be in. It is scary, Because essentially, God is giving you up to your own sins, to your own lusts, to your own desires. So how do you know? How can you avoid that, right? That should be the question that you're asking. How how do I, as a disciple, avoid that? I know that uh, 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 currently I am following Christ, yet I know my wicked heart, right? Back to 7, 1 through 5. I know that I am unrighteous. I know I fall short of God's standard. How do I know that I'm not going to end up in that state? And the answer to that is the next section. The next section. 7 through 11, request good things from the Father. Request good things from the Father. Verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, 
and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, we read that initially, and we think, hey, prayer. And it is true. It is prayer. But we also recognize, hey, wait a minute. We've heard these terms. Ask, and it will be given to you. Wait a minute. The the dogs and the pigs were not given something. What were they not given? They weren't given the message of the kingdom. Seek. Hey, wait a minute. Last week we were talking about uh, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Knock, and it will be open to you. Hey, remember in, in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, uh, unless you have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, next, next week, uh, he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about uh, traveling by the narrow gate versus the wide road, right? So we've got this entrance sort of language. So while I think that Jesus is talking about prayer, I think it's broader than that. I think he's talking about how do you get the kingdom to begin with? How do you keep on in the kingdom? The verbs here, they're, it's, it's literally kind of the idea, keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it will be open to you. Keep doing what? Doing all these things for what? For the kingdom, right? To be able to have that grace. So you're not insensitive, right? Like, like the, the dogs and the pigs, uh, so that you not become in, insensitive. How do, you, how do you avoid becoming hardened? How do you become, uh, how do you as a disciple avoid going off track? Well, it's the exact same thing that, um, that, that is, is true of your initial conversion, your initial repentance and faith in Christ. Ask, seek, knock. Look to God's grace. Look to God's grace. Because you're falling short. You're, you're not righteous, 7, 1 through 5. You fall short of the Father's standard. How are you going to make sure that you make it? How are you going to make sure that you make it to the end, that you not become a dog or a pig. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be open. There's a promise here. There's a promise here that the Father will give to the one who asks, to the one who seeks, to the one who knocks. Jesus supports it. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. Uh, stones, uh, they were kind of uh, brown and flat in Israel. So it kind of looks like a loaf of bread, but that would be a cruel trick from a, uh, from a father. To, it's like, oh, you want some bread? Here, let me give you a stone, right? Or uh, you want a fish? Here, let me give you a snake. It kind of lo- It's dead, but it kind of looks like a fish, but it's just kind of a rancid thing to eat. No one's going to do that. No good father is going to do that. Verse 11, if you then who are evil, he's talking to the disciples, right? You already acknowledge you fell short of God's standard, 7, 1 through 5. You're evil as disciples. You're evil as disciples, and yet you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things like the kingdom, like Christ? like those holy things that we were talking about to those who ask him. A father is generous to all who ask. There's a reality in which, you know, some, some of us, some of you struggle with, um, I know some of you struggle with assurance, right? And we often do, right? I've struggled with assurance of salvation, right? Am I, am, I, am I really in? Am I really not? Uh, am I going to make it to the kingdom? Am I not? I've got these sin issues in my life. Am I going to be there or am I going to fall away? Am I going to become a dog or a pig? What's the answer? The answer is look to a good and generous heavenly father who has made every provision for you through Christ. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Repent. Turn allegiance from your sin and self. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Look to the king. Look to the one who will give himself on the cross for his people. Ask God for the grace to keep going. It's not just an initial thing. It's an ongoing thing. 
to make it to the end. Really, what we're talking about is perseverance. How do you persevere in faith the same way you started in faith? Asking God for his grace through the gospel, through Christ, to keep going. And God gives. God is generous and good. I think sometimes we forget that, that God is a judge. And yet here, as Christ is saying, he's a good and generous father. He is good. He desires people to know him. He desires people to make it to the end. Persevere in seeking God's grace to make it to the kingdom. Look to your generous father through Christ. And then, if you have that attitude, if you relate to the father in that sort of way, then you can do verse 12. Do to people as you would want them to do to you. Do to people as what you would want them to do to you. Verse 12. So, actually, that so, that little conjunction there could be therefore connects with what just came. Um, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. You know, it's interesting, you think about this, um, uh, how does the world operate? The world operates like this, whatever others do to you, do also to them. Did you catch that? Whatever others do to you, do also to them. That's natural. In fact, Jesus talked about that earlier in the sermon, right? Uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But what's the difference? Uh, what Jesus says is whatever you wish or desire that others would do to you, do also to them. Consider what would be you would want to have happen to you and do that to others. But how do you do that? You do that only if you've received from the generous Father, like we just talked about. You receive God's grace from the Father. You receive the ability to make it to the end in the kingdom. And having received from a generous and good Father, you're, you're not carried about your own interests. You're, carried about the, you're caring about the interests of others. You're thinking about, well, what would I want in this situation? What would be... What, what would I want? And then you're transferring that to that other person. And Jesus says, for this is the law and the prophets. It bookends exactly what Jesus was talking about in 517 through 20. He's ending the section because everything he talked about in the sermon, really anything you could think about as far as an expression of God's heart of righteousness in the law, the prophets, that's the Old Testament. Remember, we talked about that. Really, it boils down to this, love God and love your neighbors, right? And how does, what is the barometer, what is the barometer of how you're loving others, uh, with how you're loving God? It's how you love others. This is what God does in the Old Testament. He, he rebukes Israel and the prophets in the Old Testament says, you're not loving your neighbors, you're not loving those around you, which means you don't love me. And so what Jesus is saying is, If you have this attitude of, okay, what would I want done to you? What would justice look like to me? Okay, let me transfer that to my neighbor, to others, because of what God has done to me, right? You're living, you're, you're, you're living by that barometer, right? You're showing by your love for others that you love God. And so really what Jesus is saying here, this principle does um, simplify down the whole lot. If you have received generously from God, if you love God, if you have been changed by God through repentance from sin and entrusting yourself to Christ, being brought into the new covenant where the Holy Spirit comes into your life and empowers you to live this kingdom righteousness, and you have that attitude then of generosity towards others, then you're fulfilling the law and the prophets. So let God's grace and generosity with you fuel grace and generosity with others, considering how you would want to be treated and then doing that to them. So like we've said at the beginning, what is Jesus doing in this last section in the main body of the Sermon on the Mount? He laid out the standard, and then he's saying, based on that, how do you, how do you relate to others? You don't judge as though you're sinless. You recognize your own sinfulness. You do correct fellow, um, fellow disciples, not based on you, but based on who God is and his righteousness. You don't give the holy, the message of the kingdom to indifferent outsiders. 
you request, you keep going, you keep persevering by requesting the grace that's through the gospel and in the gospel, the message of the kingdom, asking good things from the Father. And flowing out of that, you do to people as you would want them to do to you. Relate to the Father, disciples, and outsiders with right judgment. See, the gospel standard, the the kingdom standard is high. It is high. And yet, while we can't meet that standard in and of ourselves, we beg grace and kindness and generosity from our Heavenly Father through the gospel. We rely on the power of the Holy Spirit that he's put in our lives as new covenant members to live out this kingdom righteousness and to relate to the Father, disciples, and outsiders with right judgment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. We thank you that you are a good and a generous Father, that we can keep coming to you and keep asking for grace when we fall, that we keep coming to you and keep asking for the kingdom when we are struggling to persevere. And we thank you that you give. Thank you for the promise that you give mightily through the gospel. We thank you that you've done all of this through Christ, the one who has paid our debt in our place and given us his righteousness. We thank you that you've given us the power of the Holy Spirit to live this out. Help us to do so. Help us to relate to others, whether in this body, outside the body, with right attitude. Help us to be humble people. Help us not to judge and condemn others in a way that makes us the standard of righteousness rather than you. We thank you for the opportunity now to celebrate your grace and the gospel in the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name, amen.